Hi, folks. I'm Christian Haynes, managing editor at the website Gamers with Glasses at www.gamerswithglasses.com. Today, we've got a special episode of the Gamers with Glasses show devoted to Noah Wardrop Fruin's 2020 book, How Pac Man Eats from MIT Press. It's a great book that asks how we can make games about more, more ideas, more topics, more pressing issues by expanding and inventing their logics and their models. More on those terms in a moment. I'm thrilled to be joined by Noah today. Hello. Noah is a professor of computational media at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he co-directs the Expressive Intelligence Studio. He's also the author of Expressive Processing, Digital Fictions, Computer Games, and Software Studios, which is also from MIT Press. In addition to Noah, I'm happy to be joined by a returning guest, Patrick Jagoda, who's a professor of English and Cinema and Media Studies at University of Chicago. Good to see you, Christian. He's the author most recently of the book Experimental Games, Critique, Play, and Design in the Age of Gamification, which is from University of Chicago Press, uh, published in 2020. And we actually had a conversation with Patrick about the book uh, last year, I want to say. Time is a very elastic thing still, I think, these days. Uh, But I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. So I wanted to just start with a nice, easy question, which is what games are folks playing? Maybe, Noah, you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, So, yes. There's a big update for Animal Crossing New Horizons, and it has definitely sucked uh, my family back in, especially our now seven-year-old who started playing it when he was five, right? Uh, And so I I think it is not an exaggeration to say uh, the the main activity I did over the weekend was um, play that with him. And then on my own, I'm mostly playing like phone games. Uh, I'm, I'm still a fan of Dear Reader, that's a great one. That's a great little one-handed game to play as you're taking walks or, you know, making sure you're not paying complete attention to the other activities you should be doing. <laughs> I like playing what they consider the very hard texts on the relaxed mode because you actually have time to sit with them and understand that the puzzle is about like sound and sense for want of a better term rather than the rather than rushing, um, which I think actually uh, is not my favorite way to encounter literature. <laughs> That's great. I love that kind of flexibility with difficulty too, that you could play the difficult text, but in a relaxing mode where you could do vice versa. Um, that's great. Patrick, what about you? I mean, I've been on a, on a roguelike kick recently. So I've, I've been playing dead cells whenever I have time in the evenings. And I usually say I'm going to play one round and then, you know, go through like three. Um, but I've, I've also been, I, I replayed the uh, a couple of 2021 games. So I replayed... Uh, 12 Minutes, which is a, a mystery game with a Groundhog Day-like premise, which unfolds in these looping 10-minute sequences. Um, and then I've also played uh, Power Wash Simulator, which is basically uh, the ASMR equivalent of a video game, where essentially you go around washing cars and residential houses, and the game inhabits uh, ordinariness and also kind of satisfies my OCD um, desire to remove dirt from objects and not see any of the dirt end up on the ground. Yeah, I, I mean, I stare and wonder at the Steam screen, at the Steam interface when I see the amount of simulator games and there's just sheer popularity. They they really have found this like use for games that I don't know if I could have imagined 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel like the closest I've playing right now um, that I do think has a kind of overlap, I'm playing this game called Unpacking, uh, mm-hmm. which is about unpacking boxes uh, for this individual, made by a very small studio that I'm not remembering the name of at the moment. Uh, but you know, unpacking boxes through this character that you never see's life as she moves from one place to the next. And it tells a kind of implicit story. And I'm at this moment in the game where uh, you very quickly see this part of her life is not gonna work as you're moving into a boyfriend's house, presumably. It's a very masculine, sharper image style apartment. It reminds me, if people remember National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, uh, the next door couple that had the like unlivable house that was constantly getting disrupted uh, by the Griswolds. Uh, But you can't unpack any of her stuff. There's no room for her stuff. You have to just like shove it into corners. You're like, ah, this relationship's not gonna work. Uh, his bench press and weights are like taking up an entire side of one wall in a two-bedroom apartment. And it was like, uh. So in any case, um, yeah, I'm glad we're all finding some games to play and squeezing it between our, I'm sure, many responsibilities, uh, especially in the middle of a semester or quarter. Um, 
Why don't we dig into your book, Noah, and talk about how you started writing How Pac-Man Eats. Maybe tell us where the title came from, too. Sure. Um, so it was, an, it was a weird journey um, because I like to do weird research. Um, it started out when I was invited to give a talk in Germany, and I was looking for a way to talk about sort of fundamental elements of games that combined how they work with what they're trying to communicate. And um, I just couldn't find a term for it. So I made one up, Operational Logics. Um, they ended up liking the talk. I wrote it up as a journal article. Um, I tried to shove some of the ideas into my dissertation unsuccessfully. Um, and then I um, sort of sat on them for a little while. Um, ended up talking with some people when I went on the faculty job market. Like when I went to Georgia Tech, I had great conversations with Michael Matias and Ian Bogost and some other folks there about the ideas. Um, when I eventually landed at UC Santa Cruz, where Michael had moved in the meantime, um, we were doing more technical research than I could do previously when I was at UC San Diego. Um, and it turned out that the same set of ideas actually turned out to be really useful for thinking about um, how you would represent these things in games inside a computational system, right? Like, hey, we could actually think simultaneously about communication and operation um, using this approach. Um, and so great, you know, I had this thing I liked to do for humanistic interpretation. It was also bleeding into technical research, but I was having real trouble teaching my introductory games class for people who were in their first year at the university because so many of them seemed to assume that the kind of game that they most like to play or the couple of types of games they most like to play um, were the definition of what games were. And every time we talked about something else, we were violating um, their strongly held assumptions about what games were, not just should be, but just were. Um, and so I actually ended up introducing the framework into my undergraduate teaching um, and using it to explain to people why we were trying to interpret and make different types of games. Um, and then over the 10 years that I wrote the book, <laughs> um, all those things um, ended up filtering into it. So um, my hope is that it's a book of interest to experts, but that through my experience of working with beginning undergrads, it's also written in a way that's accessible to non-experts. So that's my that's my biggest hope for the book. Great, that's great. And I think one of the things we'll see is, uh, you know, the title of the book, I think actually really well speaks yeah. to uh, what you're doing in the book in the sense of trying to bridge those, you know, that gap between, okay, how did this thing work in the most literal sense? How do we, how do players experience it? How does, on an algorithmic level, how does it work? But then also, how does it work on us, right? Like, how does it shape mm -hmm. us as players? Um, and I think maybe the easiest way to kind of dig into this is to talk about some of the key terms in your book. And, and I, you know, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's really two key terms, right? Which is nice. There's two key terms that all the book kind of iterates on, and that's models and logics or playable models and operational logics, really. And these are distinguished from terms that I think any gamer is really used to seeing in, you know, a review on IGN or Kotaku or Eurogamer or wherever, um, which is terms like mechanics systems every game has mechanics some games have more systems than others but you know you make a case for why these terms are maybe useful sometimes but a little too loose um so maybe you could talk about why you decided on these terms and what they do for you sure um so one place that i felt motivated to do something different was uh again in the classroom, right? Where um, like students would use terms like mechanics and systems interchangeably. Um, and it was very hard to say that was wrong given that um, professional designers and professional game critics and other people, scholars uh, do the same thing, right? 
Um, so part of it is just that these terms are used so broadly as to be not really meaningful, right? I would actually have to say to students, you know, the two main meaning of mechanics that we see in the field are things that players are able to do and things that the system does at all. And it's okay if you use it either way, right? Um, but then the other was that, um, again, I think the fundamental things that we say games do, right? If you look at something like Jesper Yule's Half Real, right? He's like, okay, there's there's the world and there's the system or the rules, right? And the it's called Half Real because the system or the rules are real and the um, fictional world is, you know, is not. Um, or if you look at like Robin Hunnicky et al's uh, Mechanics, Dynamics, Aesthetics, right? There's like, there's this, thing that we're experiencing that's connected to themes and imagination and so on. And then there's the way the game works, right? Um, so over and over again, I think we as a field point to the idea that these things have to be connected um, and yet our vocabularies always disconnect them, right? Mechanics is just on the system side. Systems is just on the system side. And then we use things like theme or something like that to talk about the other side. And part of why these terms have, at least for me, been useful of operational logics, which are sort of these very small units like collision um, and playable models, which are these larger um, constructs like movement through space, right? Um, is that there are ways of specifically talking about these two things um, inseparably, right? Now, maybe that's, you know, kind of old school semi-biotic-y of me. <laughs> um, I'm sure you could tease them apart in fruitful ways, but I think we first need to take the step of actually analyzing them together. One thing I really like about those terms is that they sort of, um, for me, synthesize like these two major uh, approaches in game studies, right? One being proceduralism, which comes from Janet Murray, Ian Bogost, your work, your earlier work, Noah, and, and that focuses on um, what it is that the game model is doing and how you can derive meaning from that versus a kind of like play-centric approach um, that, uh, you know, to some degree, people like Mary Flanagan or Miguel Sickhart certainly um, advocate for, which focuses on player actions within or in response to that model. And I like the way that these two terms come together to not make it a debate anymore, but to simply emphasize different aspects of the, of the interchange. And I thought, I mean, one of the things that I really liked in the book, um, and it's funny because I'm not even sure I necessarily agree with your argument, <laughs> but you have this great moment where you critique Grand Theft Auto 4, I want to say it was. And part of what you get at is that there's this whole of, you know, slew of player-centric approaches, right? That are very much you could use as case studies for like Mary's work and, you know, Sigal, uh, as these case studies for how players kind of take games and make their own, but you point out these kind of limits to that, right? Both in your own individual experience, like this is what this game allows me to do, but this is what it doesn't let me do. This is where it quite literally follows me around, pushes me towards this moment that I have to encounter. Otherwise, other things come closed off. And you talk about this using design language, you know, design in a very large sense, not just game design of affordances, right? What does a game afford you to do, right? What does it allow you to do? Not just to, you know, enable you to do, but what does it kind of sort of push you towards, sculpt the experience of? And what are the limits of that, right? Um, and I think, you know, logics and models really help kind of highlight that. And one of the things we've talked about a little bit already is Animal Crossing. And I thought maybe we could kind of work out together, the three of us, what, how your logics and models uh, sort of paradigm would work for Animal Crossing New Horizons. Because it's not an example you use in the book, uh, probably because it, you, know, you wrote the book before it came out or <laughs> finished up writing it right as it was coming out. Yes, so, um, you know, my family really got sucked into Animal Crossing New Horizons. Um, and my first reactions to it were um, pretty positive. You know, the, the kids were really enjoying it. But soon they were, um, they were just fighting over resources all the time, right? Um, New Horizons will only allow you to have one island per switch. Um, we only had one switch. 
And that meant if, you know, one kid went and harvested the seashells or hit the rocks or dug up the fossils or whatever, um, the other one was screwed. And, um, and so, you know, so eventually my reactions shifted to visceral anger <laughs> because this game was causing so much conflict in my family. The first thing I tried to do when I wanted to take a step back analytically was um, look at it from a kind of formal economic system perspective, right? Like I actually sat down with um, OmniGraffle, I don't know if you know that software, and tried to do my own little version of like a machinations diagram that your Dormans would do, right? And yes, lots of sources and sinks and so on appear, um, but on that analysis, the main thing that you see is that um, the normal economic engines of a resource-focused game aren't there. But it's really hard to see what is there. Um, the logics and models approach is significantly less detailed, right? It basically says, of all these nodes and connections in this graph, which ones are about resources, right? Essentially, things that can go up and down gold, health, right? All those things we see in games, uh, you know, in Animal Crossing, how many sticks you're carrying around, um, how many bells, um, and how many of them are about progression, which essentially one way of thinking about it is things that can only move one direction, right? Building new buildings in Animal Crossing, getting new DIY recipes, getting new furniture items added to your catalog. Um, and as soon as I switched to that lens, I realized, my God, this game is all about progression, right? The reason you never build a resource machine like you do in most resource-focused games is that resources aren't that important. You know, you're constantly like busting into your neighbor's house, hoping to find them crafting so that you can increase your collection of um, DIY recipes, right? But it's the progression of that collection that's at the heart of the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I was joking before the show that Noah and I are like the two grumpiest people about <laughs> Animal Crossing uh, in the United States right now. Although Noah is more positive about this maybe than I am. I mean, I, you know, like I, I played Animal Crossing when it first came out and I actually do appreciate what it did socially during the pandemic. So I, I kind of separate that social piece out in some ways and value it. But in terms of gameplay, right, the the island on, in Animal Crossing feels like a company town where you're an, an indentured servant who has to constantly buy new things and take out mortgages on your house in order to progress. And you know, if you bracket the constant debt, it still feels kind of like a, a crummy resort town where rather than getting meaningful exploration, you're asked to perform a series of repetitive tasks. And other times it feels a little bit like an imperialist adventure uh, where you colonize and develop an empty island taxonomize the local fauna and place it in the museum uh, with the company there to protect you from the kinds of risks that Robinson Crusoe might have uh, might have faced, right? Um, and, and all of these frames, I think, are, are kind of damning to what the game is actually doing at a deeper level that I think the language of operational logics helps us to see. Um, so as you can see, I don't love Animal Crossing, um, <laughs> but I actually do love uh, a number of slow games and cozy games, right? So I would think of, um, on the more experimental end, this would be things like Ian Bogos' Slow Year or Tracy Fullerton's Walden, or, you know, this um, totally fabulous, tiny, tiny open world game, A Short Hike, in which you hike up a mountain in order to get cell phone reception. And that game promotes reflectiveness, but also curiosity and play in a way that I personally just don't get from Animal Crossing. So there's an opportunity to progress up the mountain, but it's the distractions and the discoveries along the way that matter far more. And one can get lost in this world for long periods of time um, just exploring, right? So I think um, um, Animal Crossing offers ambient joys in theory, but the day-to-day -day of the gameplay sometimes feels akin uh, to checking off things on a to-do list or answering emails that keep flooding your inbox, which, which <laughs> I have plenty to do outside of gameplay. Um, so, so, so there's something very limiting about it. And, it. and it's strange, you know, like I don't get the same feeling from a game like Stardew Valley, which is also a life simulator that has many similarities to Animal Crossing. And I wonder if one of the reasons has to do with 
um, a greater number of play styles or a variety of operational logics across a range of mini games and emergent scenarios that come up in Stardew Valley that don't to the same degree come up in Animal Crossing. That's interesting. I mean, it's almost, you know, part of what I'm hearing here too is that there's a kind of friction, let's say, between on the one hand, what not only in the marketing, but I also think in people's narratives of Animal Crossing, uh, you know, they think about the game as being about, which is a kind of relaxing, bucolic, pastoral sort of retreat from, well, both everything that sucked about the last couple of years uh, during the pandemic, but also, you know, kind of mod modern life more generally, something that Stardew Valley makes very explicit with its kind of, you know, leave the city and encroaching Walmart business, essentially, that's trying to take the town over. Um, but the operational logics and even the playable model of Animal Crossing say something a, a lot different. And when I was hearing, and this is in part because of some of my research lately, I've been working on, I mostly work on finance, capital, and culture, and I've been working on video games in that respect. And I've been thinking a lot about the overlap between Animal Crossing, and again, you wouldn't probably associate with it, namely Kentucky Route Zero. Mm -hmm. uh, two games, two of the games in the past couple of years uh, that are about debt, right? And about being indebted and about what you do in respect to that debt. And obviously they take very different approaches to it, have very different operational logics. Uh, Kentucky Route Zero is a very narrative sort of indie game and it does not have really a resource logic at all, I don't think. Um, but, you know, like you were saying, Noah, this is Animal Crossing there's a progress and that progress is also about depleting debt. So I'm wondering what you think about maybe the friction between communication and operation in that game, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'd say debt is um, certainly important in animal crossing. And um, I hadn't played any games in the series before. I was pretty shocked that that was actually the starting point for the game. It would not have been in the stuff I'd, seen in them you know in the online marketing materials <laughs> um i was uh, upset to have that normalized for my kids so that's basically how you start out in life is the mortgage sort of simulator debt. um <laughs> but um you know i guess i'd say the the um the friction is in part um due to those aspects of the fictional world. But the, yeah, the friction is also in part due to how it operates, right? Um, because it's trying to use a lot of the same engagement strategies that we associate with like social network games and um, phone games and so on, it's like the worst job in the world. Um, you, you know, my kids um, are very motivated as a lot of people are by loss aversion. And um, if you check in every day at the glorified ATM in Animal Crossing, um, you get 300 Nook Miles, the other currency, every day. As soon as you miss a day, your bonus goes down to 50, right? Um, there is no fictional world explanation for this, right? This is entirely a naked um, attempt to make Animal Crossing your job. Um, and again, it's a extremely mundane job. The interesting characters in the game are basically all entrepreneurs. And I think that framing caused my kids to have that kind of neoliberal moment of saying like, hey, I should be a self-made person in this world. And they tried to start businesses. But of course the game doesn't recognize those or respond in any meaningful way, right? It's not Stardew Valley. Um, it's not even lemonade stand. And so the um, the result was they realized they could not have that kind of agency. Um, and that was uh, maybe the point, <laughs> but I don't like it. I mean, who knows? Maybe that frustration is actually like the most positive read you could have there, right? <laughs> like your hope to sort of turn this into successful pedagogy for our kind of neoliberal conditions is destined <laughs> to fail. Uh, so maybe try something else. Um, maybe that's too generous. Uh, I like I, that interpretation. Yeah. I, I sometimes think that Nintendo, of all the video game companies, Nintendo is the one that makes it easiest or cultivates a kind of ease in forgetting that it's a corporation. 
uh, despite the fact that of our video companies, it's the oldest and the one that has arguably the most sorted economic past. Uh, interestingly sorted, right? And it's kind of marketed in illegal playing cards in Japan um, early 20th century. But nonetheless, uh, so I think that was a great sort of example about what these terms can do, right? They open up that sort of pathway that I think you've wanted to create between making sure that when we're analyzing elements of games or doing is looking at both faces, both the face of, uh, you know, how it communicates to a player and then how it actually produces a kind of ludic, a gameplay experience. And that these two things have to be understood as intertwined in some way, right? And that sort of parsing that out and thinking those connections is what's crucial. And, you know, one of the things you really kind of get to in the book is you you set up these different ways that we can expand what games are about right and and that term about i want to talk about that term about in a moment because i think it can be used in different ways uh you you talk about expanding uh these logics you talk about inventing new logics you talk about cultivating alternative logics and i thought maybe a good example to think about let's call it the life history of the introduction of new models and uh logics was the walking simulator and gone home, but also more generally walking simulators as a term that I think was almost wholly pejorative at one point, but I think is actually being used positively by a lot of reviewers and players um, who seek out these games. Uh, I include myself very much in that. I love um, various walking sims and probably one of my favorite games in the past 10 years is uh, What Remains of Edith Finch, um, which is, I think, the walking simulator that really uh managed to kind of experiment with operational logics in a way that some don't so yeah maybe we could talk about like how would you situate gone home in terms of logics and models sure um so yeah those three ways that i talk about us expanding possibilities through logics and models um there's alternative expansive and inventive right um and inventive is probably just what you might think of when you hear that term right like um, I, in part, tell the story of how things like collision were brought into video games through, you know, decades of work. Um, and then the expansive is basically taking something existing and trying to make it communicate something new. So I realized I never answered your question about the title. Um, that's how Pac-Man eats, right, is that um, that collision, which had been used over and over in games, but always just to mean one thing literally running into another, um, becomes also metaphorical, right? It doesn't just mean collision, it also means consumption, right? Uh, and then the trickiest of them probably is alternative, because alternative has to always be seen against the backdrop of current practice in games, right? Um, so at one point, right, the point at which Gone Home was um, having, you know, lots and lots of positive reviews on mainstream game sites and other people and people were um, in some cases acting bewildered and uh, having a pre-Gamergate tantrum about, um, about non-games. Um, that moment, uh, using a three-dimensional spatial model to walk around space, but not marrying it with the kind of combat model that you'd seen in games like Wolfenstein on forward that use that kind of continuous movement rather than um, like mist-like, you know, click and move movement. Um, that was significantly alternative. And so much of the writing about it was like, hey, you get to explore a space with no gun, right? Um, and just a few years later, by the time Edith Finch came out, um, it was already less alternative, right? People were already starting to think about this as a genre of experience. Uh, and I'm really interested in tracking those changes in how we see the fundamental vocabulary of games. But I'm also interested in things that we can do critically and pedagogically, right? Like I can tell my undergrads, hey, I want you to take something that works totally 
worked out way in games, right? You know, maybe Unity already supports it. Maybe Twine or Bitsy already supports it. But I want you to use it in some domain where it's not commonly used. And they say, oh, I can do that. And I can see how I might be able to make a game about something it'd be hard to make a game about if I was following the normal design conventions. That's great. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting there because you have like neutralizing a certain element of gameplay shooting, uh, which then opens something up, but then that sort of opening then becomes a kind of route that then ends up, be, you know, to do all kinds of new things, but then that becomes a kind of lineage. And next thing you know, I have to admit that I was like, you know, I, I watched the kind of like super cut of, uh, you know, Zuckerberg introducing the new <laughs> meta uh, grouping. And I was thinking, oh, so he just wants to make work life into a walking simulator. I get it. Um, but a really uninteresting one from what I can tell. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm joking a little bit. Uh, but the point there being that, you know, it's not a bad thing, but these things, they get turned into conventions. And one of the things that I think is interesting about your book um, is that it is also a sort of a historiographic model, right? It's a way of talking about the history of games as well. And you do that, for example, when you talk about um, the history of space shooters uh, in video games going back to the 50s and 60s, you know, and Atari's kind of first flop uh, with their attempt to adapt space wars. And then you know, moving on into the way in which that gets turned into Pac-Man, which is what happens when the collision is no longer a collision, but an eating, right? But it's still a collision. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, it's great. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that this allows us to do is to get into the point of your book where you're you're doing something that I think actually game studies does well um, in comparison to a lot of other fields in the humanities, which is acknowledging the ongoing need or ongoing inescapability of, of the prescriptive or normative moment, by which I mean just, you know, the fact that like, like it as much as we want, scholars can't just step back and be like, we're just going to study this thing. We end up making judgments, right? We end up saying this is good and this is bad, or this is what I'd like to see more of, and this is what I wouldn't like to see. And I think your, your book comes up with a way of doing that, which is about, well, it's about aboutness, right? Mm -hmm. It's about talking about what games can be about and what they can't be about and what it takes for a game to be about something novel, maybe something really difficult to talk about, like Holocaust, or maybe something uh, that's not necessarily difficult to talk about, uh, but that we just don't talk about. Like, you know, I mentioned that game Unpacking. You know, mm -hmm. why have a game about moving? And unpacking, that sounds boring. And yet, we've actually seen a few games like that. There is a game, I believe, just called Moving or Moving Out um, that came out a couple of years ago. And so, you know, I, I just, I would love to hear you talk about like the, maybe polemical is too strong a term, but the kind of like the argumentative thrust of the book in terms of what you'd like to see from games, why the term about is so important, why the last section of your book is called uh, Making Games About More. So. <laughs> Yeah, so well, I mean, I think we've been satisfied a lot in the last decade or two to um, sort of say, hey, you know, games are becoming about more, they're becoming, you know, uh, much more varied. Um, it's, you know, it's a huge leap from the kind of concerns that we found in Centipede to the kind of concerns that we find in World of Warcraft to the kind of concerns that we find in a short hike. Um, hey, you know, um, the main thing that we as scholars and makers can do is congratulate ourselves. You know, our medium is maturing. We are reaching new people with new messages. Um, and I think, you know, all of that is true on some level, but on another level, it obscures the fact that even those of us who are in really comfortable positions, right, like tenured faculty at universities, right, um, we aren't doing things to um, interrogate and push as much as we might um, in many cases, right? Um, so what might we do if we weren't just going to um, say either you know, totally uh, economically precarious indies like, you know, Dietrich Squinkifer or somebody like that, 
um, or big companies like Microsoft and Blizzard, they're going to take care of it, right? Um, and my answer, I suppose, is to say, well, first, you know, we can learn from these strategies that we've seen from designers over the years with operational logics and playable models. And um, once we have this vocabulary and are doing this interrogation, it presumably will open up a bunch of interesting places to experiment, right? Um, but the other thing we can do is say, how can we participate? So um, as you mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a chunk of the book that comes directly out of my work with people in the Expressive Intelligence Studio. Um, these ideas are the shape they are from working with Michael Matias and Joe Osborne, but also with a bunch of other people whose names don't come up as much in the book. And in a way, what I'm trying to do with the book is share the work of this community I've been part of that hasn't really been articulating its work in these terms, I think. Um, but anyway, out of that <laughs> comes our desire to bring um, the inventive work back into the university, right? If you think about something like rogue, right? The roguelike genre, or you think about space war, or you think about mud one or whatever, you think about so many of the um, things that are now pointed to as milestones in terms of games having new possibilities. Um, they came out of universities and national labs. and um, and they came out of a combination of people who had technical resources and were doing technical research and their desire to reach an audience, often for something as quotidian as like a demo day, right? Um, and, um, and so that's basically like why we have now a department at UC Santa Cruz called computational media is we want people who are um, able to use technical tools, but who don't see their success as driving a graph up into the right, you know, like, oh, it mine's more efficient, you know, um, who are able to do humanistic critique, but not simply in order to point out what's wrong, but actually to think about what more productive framings might be and are able to design, right? Um, now, not everyone can do all of these things, but if you bring together a community that values all these things, I think you can, um, try to do new kinds of experiments in the space of gaming. So the case study that I tell in the book is basically of our, our game Prom Week and um, how a game that we thought would take six months <laughs> ended up taking us years um, because this is really hard to do. Um, but we're the ones with the freedom to do it. And I think we should be shouldering that burden more consciously. And I just want to sort of call attention to Prom Week as a game that tries to introduce what it calls a uh, social physics logic and just in order to expand the kinds of social interactions and that get communicated, that, that get experienced uh, with a game. And one of the things that you really sort of wrestled with is how to communicate it through the UI. Like, do you use arrows? Do you use, like, how do you, do you use different colors and things like that? All these simple things that have these dramatic effects. And one of the things I love about, you know, the work you and Patrick are doing, um, Noah, is that you are you know, like you said, you're getting back to those roots of the fact that a lot of, you know, what games uh, sort of came to be came out of university labs and military labs, but that's, you know, we can talk about that another time. Um, and uh, Often there's you know, no distinction. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, um, I'm just thinking about like all of that stuff that came out of uh, GW about the NSA's sort of funding for their computer science program. Um, but, you know, we can sort of sidestep that for a moment, but also, you know, we talk a lot at universities about things like interdisciplinarity and collaboration. And, and I don't know if there's a better model than at least the model of a game studio at its best. So not the game studio that has you working seven days a week and crunching, um, but the game studio that does bring all of these different talents together and asks, how can we make this object with all those different talents? Um, and, you know, I guess maybe one question I could ask both of you, uh, and Noah, maybe you can start us off, is, is there anything you guys are working on right now that you're excited about that you want to talk about um, with uh, either the Accessible Intelligence Studio or the couple of labs I know you work with, Patrick? Sure. Um, well... Uh, I describe our work at the Expressive Intelligence Studio as like being at a conference every day. <laughs> um, that sounds wonderful and terrible at the same exactly, time. Exactly, yes. There's, there's so much going on and there's so many exciting people. Um, I guess 
I'd say one thing that um, I kind of put to the side in this book, but that I think might connect well with Patrick's work is that um, we're doing um, various kinds of projects around um, role-playing. So um, some of those are technical. So like um, there's a student, Devi, and her work is um, trying to look at um, things like story complexity in um, role-playing game scenarios and how um, games with a lot of story complexity, like, um, I don't know if any of you played any of the gumshoe games. Um, she's looking particularly at the gumshoe one-to-one -one system. Um, that there's this burden on the, both the game master and the player of keeping all the threads and all the clues and all the possibilities um, in mind. And she's trying to make a computational system that, um, that helps people explore these kinds of role-playing without being the kinds of experts that you see on streaming, right? Um, and oh, at the same time with Elizabeth Swenson and Michael Chemmers, I'm uh, working on a proposal for a new book, which is a collection of critical role-playing scenarios where um, each contribution is both a one-shot scenario that you play and an accompanying essay that um, delves into this idea of role-playing as a critical practice. Oh, what a great uh, classroom tool that'll be. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, yeah, that's great to hear. And Patrick, I know you've been doing a lot of work with like uh, augmented reality, ARGs. Uh, what's on your plate? Yeah, a, a couple of diff different things. So um, in one of my labs, the Game Changer Chicago Design Lab, uh, we've been basically co-creating games, uh, primarily with black and brown youth on the south side of Chicago, thinking about uh, sexual and reproductive health issues, not in like a narrow medical sense, but really thinking about the way that issues of race, class, gender intersect with health and well-being. And we've been focusing there primarily on uh, board game production. So we have every summer we've had a grant um, to have workshops that focus on particular topics within health um, that youth begin to sort of learn around and where our professional game designers come in and sort of augment or, or rebuild some of the things that they've done for slightly broader consumption. So that's been one kind of project, which is a little bit more um, uh, pedagogical or co-creative. The other um, thread of work has been around alternate reality games, as you said, and that's been with a group called the Forecast Lab. Um, amazing group of people. Um, Heidi Coleman, who's a, a theater uh, maker, a dramaturg. Uh, Mark Downey, who's a who's an algorithmic and 3D filmmaker. Ashlyn Sparrow, um, who uh, who's a game designer, um, and I work with very closely. And, and Kristen Schilt, who's a sociologist and helps us evaluate these games. And so it's been interesting to have that group of people, and then a kind of like secondary layer of puzzle makers and set designers and people like that uh, to collaborate with. But in that work, I'm really interested in a kind of more radical approach uh, to yes and in co-creation, um, but one that um, that has more to do with, I guess, world building in some ways than operational logics. Still the question of like how best to imagine and enact a world with other people requires better, better models, right? I mean, it's important to work out in game design, but also in politics at a moment when democracy is deteriorating and is likely to face even greater uh, challenges, to put it nicely, in the coming years because of climate change, because of unprecedented global inequality. And I think ARGs uh, offer a place to really experiment with that sort of thing. So we're working on a, on a big climate change game right now for uh, middle schoolers at three mm. different schools. And we're trying to create um, uh, three instances of a game that come kind of crashing together into a single narrative at, at one point. And then, you know, th just the last thing that I'll say is that at a more granular level, um, I'd love to see more movement toward cooperative mechanics in games. So like in US culture, we're very obsessed with competition, have been for a long time, uh, certainly since the Cold War um, and, and long before that. And you know, the neoliberal rule set has found its way into so many of the sports and the video games that we play. We even see this allegorized in like the Netflix hit series Squid Game or Alice in Borderland. Um, and, and so one of the areas that I really like to see uh, more innovation on is in the development of uh, things like asymmetrical cooperative mechanics in games. So in other words, situations where two or more players 
have fundamentally different capacities and have to combine those in order to overcome a larger challenge. So we've been experimenting a lot with, uh, with uh, asymmetrical cooperative mechanics in our ARGs. And I think that kind of mechanic can uh, promote curiosity, creativity, and a greater sense of collectivity when it, when it works. That's great. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting in the work both of you just described is that overlap between, you know, to use the kind of, I guess the best terms I can think of the physical and the virtual there, the way in which, you know, and I mean, not just like that, you're the sort of virtual spaces you're putting are representing certain kinds of physical spaces that they may be doing that, but also that they're in fact integrating uh, elements of physical space that aren't normally part of playing games back into games or into games so that they can do other things or be about other things. And I really like that. So the last thing that we maybe talk about, um, kind of just sort of zoom out a bit is, I guess, just design principles, right? Like the kind of principles that drive us to make decisions about how we make games and what we'd like to see maybe more of, maybe what we'd like to see less of. And uh, yeah, Noah, maybe you could talk a little bit about like, what, what would you like to see more games doing or having as great sort of ground principles? Well, I guess I'd say, you know, one thing that I would like to see just as a design practice is um, us thinking more about what humanistic styles of thinking can bring to game design, right? Um, I think, you know, some game design situations value art critique, right? Um, I'd say relatively few. Um, a larger number uh, value um, playtesting, but I also see that increasingly turned into a kind of social scientific um, games user research, which again isn't bad, but is very different, right? Um, I'd like to see us actually asking, you know, what do we mean to be making a game about? And what is our game currently about, right? So like one of the things we had to ask ourselves in prom week is like, we have implemented things like, um, popularity to mean certain things and work certain ways in this world and does that actually match up with what we mean to be saying through the game and we have decided to elide things um i think from the point of view of the design team very intentionally that did not in the end come across to the players as intentional um like we did not model um heteronormativity when we did not model racism um, and I think some players, like, even though we, we thought <laughs> we were nudging pretty strongly in that direction, um, found some of the early puzzles almost insoluble because their assumption was a game that presented itself with this kind of cute aesthetic must be heteronormative, right? Um, so anyway, um, I guess I'd say um, that kind of design principle broadly and then, you know, one last pitch for my framework. Um, I have found it useful to frame the analysis in terms of logics and models, right? So we were really thinking about what does it mean to have a playable model of social interaction when we were making prom week. In Devi's project, we're really thinking like, okay, how are things like linking logics and pattern matching logics being used to create a model of how the narrative can progress in this kind of role-playing game. Um, what are the limits of that? What are the ways that we can enable new possibilities for that? That's great, that's great. Patrick, do you wanna take us home? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'll, I'll also end where, where my experimental games book ends in some ways, which is I, I continue to be obsessed with how best to introduce new forms of improvisation into games. And I mean games of all sorts, board games, transmedia games, video games, um, but where the kind of like human component comes in. And of course, improv isn't total freedom, right? Improv is learning a system well enough that you can move and maneuver within it in interesting and unexpected ways. And there are ways that game designers can communicate more effectively with players to make it clear to them when and how they might improvise or how they might prepare for that process. And that's something we've been 
uh, playing a lot with alternate reality games. I mean, when I when I first started designing them, uh, we would have these amazing moments in which the players could completely sort of like remake the narrative, not in a branching tree sort of way, but really radically change it. But the problem was they didn't know they were doing it most of the time, right? We weren't communicating effectively as designers. And so over time, we've tried to, um, to demonstrate to players in real time um, how that back and forth is, is unfolding, to make it more compelling to them, to give them a different sense of what their agency might be. So uh, this is a realm where I think drawing from, from other arts, whether it's martial arts or theater and performance or jazz um, and different forms of music performance uh, can be really productive for, for game designers as well. I, I often think of um, this line that, um, I'll paraphrase, but that Ian Bogos threw out at a, a keynote at Indi Indicate that you know, the most interesting thing, things about games are like everything other than games. And I think, you know, it's partially a facetious line, but, but it's suggesting that there's so much to learn from the humanities, the social sciences, the sciences um, uh, that we can bring in and combine with a kind of amazing formal vocabulary that uh, Noah's giving us in this book. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me because I think Noah says actually almost something similar at one point where he talks about, you, know, you talk about Noah, the way in which games do have to lean on other arts and that's not necessarily a bad thing right it actually speaks to this kind of like great back and forth flow and the fact that games can be about so much and do so much precisely because they're plugged in to all of these different social and philosophical and just thoughtful arenas of life and uh yeah no this has been a lot of fun and i really appreciate both appreciate both of you taking the time to come on the show and talk to us about your work and Noah uh, I really appreciate the book and thanks so much for writing it for being willing to talk about how Pac-Man eats well thank uh, you for having me it's a real pleasure thanks so much Noah thanks for having me as well Christian anytime